don't let the shrieks of the temporal disturb the silence of your eternal self. When enough minds are vibrating on a high enough level, and all lower thought forms will fall of their own dead weight. Everyone feels on some level like an alien in this world, because we are. We come from another realm of consciousness and long to embrace the void. this void quite calming actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 97 of Embrace the Void where the light and the darkness maintain an amicable truce and sometimes have sloppy drunk sex. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me this week is a returning guest who brings us a rather voidy theory of political behavior uh, that I think explains much of what we're experiencing today. Uh, so get your safe word handy and let's spin the wheel. My returning guest this week is Toby Buckle of the Political Philosophy Podcast, where he recently released a three-part series on Machiavelli, where he destroyed everyone's understanding of Machiavelli with facts and logic. Uh, <laughs> Toby, would you like to say hi to the Void? Hey, Void. Um, yeah, thanks for having me back on. Appreciate it. It's good to have you back. Um, I really enjoyed the the three-part series, um, and obviously we're not going to be able to cover all of it here, but people should definitely go over and have a listen we're going to cover a couple of things that came up, especially in the part three section, but I think also a little bit in the part two as well. Um, I mean, I'm curious to get us going here. What made you want to discuss such an obscure and uh, rarely covered figure like Machiavelli? Machiavelli's <laughs> really fun. Um, and I don't know that he's obscure. I I'm, feel I'm kidding. Like... I think he's probably the least obscure, right? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, like, I feel like everyone at least knows the name. Um, honestly, I let my audience decide. I had, like, three topics I could do a big project on, and I just did a poll, and it was quite close, but Machiavelli won. He's someone I've read forever and I've loved forever, and... I mean, he's just good fun. It's a good mm -hmm. fun. It's not like doing Hegel or something. You know, right. Um, right. It's, it's not uh, a slog. <laughs> um, what, what do you feel like are the major sort of misconceptions that you feel like people might have about Machiavelli? Or do you feel like people mostly have the right idea with him? I mean, there's so many Machiavellis, right? Sure. Like, um, and I think that's kind of fun. And I'm not even in the business of saying, like, you're wrong to think this about Machiavelli. I'm saying, hey, this is a plausible mm -hmm of Machiavelli but I sort of have this metaphor of if you imagine like a huge sprawling mansion with many rooms and gardens and it's filled with just hundreds of very very different eclectic figures and these are the different Machiavellis this man has been um so this man has been read from being anything from um, a sort of Hobbesian authoritarian to a totalitarian to a sort of liberty-loving Republican to an anarchist to mm -hmm. um, someone who discovered modern science before modern science to someone who was actually just reviving the ancient world. So there's just this huge plethora of Machiavellis. I definitely, um, my Machiavelli is on the Republican side as opposed to um, the sort of authoritarian side. So I'm reading Machiavelli as people like Quentin Skinner and Philip Pettit and Hannah Adrent do as a philosopher of freedom, as opposed mm -hmm. to a philosopher of um, autocratic authoritarian rule. And that's just sort of 
that would be like my opening move for how for how I view him. But there's right. there's it doesn't admit of summary. There's just like a million different constructions, which is weird <laughs> given that he's an unusually straightforward and direct thinker. Like I say, this isn't Hegel. You know, the guy writes in right. everyday language fairly clearly. No, I, I really like the way that you sort of explain how you're laying out a specific interpretation, and uh, I think it's an interesting one. And we'll we'll talk about the the freedom side, I think, a little bit when we get to the discussion of um, desire to dominate um, and humiliate. I wanted to start a little bit um, though with talking about one, uh, a theory you lay out before it that I think is importantly related to that theory, and is um, the theory of the cyclical nature of politics or political um, institutions or governments. This is actually something that I covered over on Philosophers in Space with my um, glorious uh, love, Loving Dune trilogy. Um, but I'm curious, can you maybe lay out like a, the brief version of what the theory is, and then do you in particular buy into any version of this sort of cyclical theory of politics? So... Very briefly, political belief systems give us ways of picturing or visualising the world. So when it comes to how we visualise change, um, change in societies, change in politics, you know, the modern mind, the picture that we have in our minds is often of progress, like the picture is like of a line on a graph going up, right? Something mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. To the ancient mind and also to the Renaissance mind that's very influenced by the ancients, the picture they have is of a circle. Um, so you might think of like night follows day, follows night, follows day. You might think of the circle of the seasons. You get spring, summer, autumn, fall, and so on. You might think of the cycle of life, uh, you know, birth, mm -hmm. growing up, having children, growing old, your children growing up, so on and so forth. Well, there's not a beginning point and an end point to it. It just goes round and round and round and round. And to a lot of the ancients, so both Plato and Aristotle fall into this, um, the way they visualize different types of states and different types of social progression is as a circle. Different types of states decay and collapse into one another, and then sort of out of the ashes of that, um, mm -hmm. you know, new new types of states grow up, which in turn grow old and die almost like people. And that's very different to how we moderns think about social change. We sort of... Um, we, we imagine ourselves at like the high point on the graph, like the, the highest rung on the civilization. The arc of ladder. history rather than the, than the loop of history. Exactly. It's a different picture that we have in mind. Um, whereas Machiavelli didn't. Machiavelli imagined himself at the at the lower point in the circle, because mm. to the to his mind, as well as to the mind of most of the people of that age, the greatest state that had ever existed, Rome, had had fallen. So they were in a position of um dis decay and disunion, attempting to work back to um hmm. that 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 higher form but that, that there was never a moment where you would like solve history or win history it was all fated to collapse again so that's right. sort of like the the that way of thinking about it do you think that whether you view the world as whether you view history as that in that art kind of progressing way versus the cyclical way might depend in some in some degree on where you see yourself within that system, right? If you're in a really good situation, for example, maybe you're more inclined to think that you are at the peak of some sort of prog progress that was occurred. You, you can tell yourself a narrative of progress more easily, whereas if you've heard stories of the great past, but you're living in a particularly bad time, like it's very easy to tell yourself the story of that cycle of decay and rebirth. Well, I mean, I think that's undeniably true right mm -hmm. so yes but th then there, obviously there's a few buts um sure. so yes like you know if we're in our current position where people you know we have modern science people are living longer than ever before we have a higher standard of living than ever before at least you know in some countries it's very easy to sort of imagine that that will just keep on 
going on forever, right? And there was mm-hmm. a very similar idea, say, just before the First World War that was sure. rather rudely interrupted, that it was just <laughs> going to to go on forever. At the same time, you know, if you're Machiavelli and you're living in this very tumultuous, divided, uneven Italy that once ruled the known world, it's very easy to sort of feel like you're at the bottom of the of the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, even in the modern age with all our technology, we're still very haunted by images of failure and apocalypse. Um, Pop culture is run through with them, right? Mm -hmm. And then even in Machiavelli's age, there's an argument that he lived in an age way more technologically advanced than that of the actual historical Rome. They just chose not to interpret it in that way. Um, I don't know. These are all just images um, of the world, they're pictures, they're stories that that we tell ourselves, right? I don't, you know. So which image are you more sympathetic to, do you feel like, the arc or the circle? That's a really great question. I think there's, 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 so to go into weeds, there's two different ways of thinking about the arc. Mm -hmm. Um, One in which it sort of has an end point or an internal logic, and one in which it's just sort of a trend. It's open-ended. It can go anywhere. And so um, the the one where there's an end point is associated with sort of liberal idealism, historically, someone like T.H. Green or maybe Rawls in today's terms. Very naive liberal idealism, I would also say. I think a lot of modern liberals don't don't believe that there's like uh, you know they when when you hear the arc of history bending towards justice we pick we, we are the response in the modern age is if you bend it properly right it's not going to do it on its own or something and there may not be an ultimate end right which goes to this other idea that that exists within liberalism um of sort of open-ended and it's 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 visualized less as like a linear arc and more as just paths emerging in front of you, right? And you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily know where they lead. Um, And that will be represented historically by someone like John Stuart Mill. I think in the more modern age, someone like Keynes is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And that I'm actually quite sympathetic to. Now, as to the circle, um, I I think that there's an element of it which I like, which, which is that it's quite dynamic. There's never a point mm-hmm. where you can just wash your hands of it of politics and it's done you're perpetually having to reassert um the demands mm-hmm. of freedom and justice and so on i i think there's something in that and we should also say finally that these aren't the only two options you have revolutionary or radical theories of change you have um equilibrium theories of change you have um conservative um restorative or reversionary theories of change so there's all there's all sorts of different um images we can understand the world through here yeah, I agree. Um, and it sounds like you and I are, for to some extent, on a similar page. I think I agree with you about the version of the arc that I'm sympathetic to. And I think when it comes to the circle, I, I'm sympathetic, though I, I think we should at least question and press on the idea that it's an unresolvable kind of dynamic that will never that you can never reach any kind of stability. It may be true. I don't, I don't feel like we've reached a kind of stability yet or have gotten anywhere close uh, at any point because... As, as we'll talk about be, um, because of human nature. But I think what I'm not sympathetic to that some people tend to put forward is the idea that like the cycle, like sort of like with the other version, has some sort of divine purpose or pattern to it or like there's some, uh, you know, special nature to it beyond it just being the uh, unavoidable perturbations of, um, you know, human beings trying to live out their conflicts. Well, any... <sighs> Any image you project onto the world is going to imply some sort of underlying dynamic that probably isn't there, right? Sure, a little bit. Every every kind of uh, ab- every time you try to cleave up the world, you're never perfectly cleaving it at the joint, and so you're creating a little bit of an abstraction that probably pulls you away from the mess as it is in itself. Yeah. The other element here um, is, of course, history and historical events and where you're Mm -hmm. located within it. Because when we, all the liberals we've just mentioned are, of course, coming after the industrial and scientific revolutions, 
Um, and and this was mm-hmm. um, both sort of explosive in terms of the sort of intellectual growth, but also incredibly societally disruptive in terms of urbanization, in terms of the creation of empire, in terms of the creation of industry. And these thinkers had to make sense of that, and they had to find a way of visualizing it that that made sense and made the word in, mm-hmm. world intelligible for them. And Machiavelli's before all of that, you know, and it shows and it, that, that this sort of cyclical way of thinking of the world, it, it rests uneasily on, you know, one and a half, two centuries of very radical and very extreme technological advancement, unlike yeah. anything human beings have ever seen before. So there's that whole element to it as well. That's a good point, right? We might we might be forced to shift from the phrase, you know, history repeats itself to like history rhymes in that, you know, it, it does the circle does seem to move in weird directions, not just literally straight around uh, in a circle. Um, but I think the reason that you put forward or as, as I understand what you were saying, the reason you put forward for why this circle happens in terms of psychology and the competing desires theory, I think. Uh, does still sit, if not, um, you know, sits probably almost even better in the modern age, right? It's been confirmed, I think, in a lot of ways. Do you want to maybe lay out what these this, this um, problem of these two competing desires is? Yeah, and I should say this is this is like a particular construction of of Machiavelli um, that I'm you know, leading from particular Republican scholars and so on, I can talk about where I get it from. But the sort of punchline is this, is that according to Machiavelli, and I'll just actually quote you from um, the discourses, um, book one, chapter four, he oh, says, in the quote, discourses? Interesting. Yeah, so so basically the two there's two big Machiavellis. There's the freedom Machiavelli and the the, the sort of authoritarian Machiavelli and it sort of depends which book you start with if you start with the prince you get the authoritarian Machiavelli and if you start with the discourses you get the sort of freedom-loving Machiavelli um, and sort of one of the big questions of Machiavelli scholarship is is can these be made coherent with each other or is he sort of inconsistent with himself anyway so in the discourses he tells us that um, he's talking about essentially riots in the early Roman Republic. And he says people who look back and they say how terrible these riots are are missing the point. And he says, quote, popular protest made the Roman Republic both free and powerful. And why? He says, because, and again, I quote, in every city, there are two dispositions, that of the rich to dominate and that of the poor, many not to be dominated. And it is in the opposition of these desires that all laws favourable to liberty have their origin, end quote. And that's a point he comes back to again and again throughout the discourses as well as throughout the Florentine histories. And it seems very axiomatic to Machiavelli that there are these two desires, that of that those who have power to use that power to dominate and humiliate other people and those who don't have power desire in turn not to be dominated and not to be humiliated and for mm-hmm. machiavelli it's there's no resting state he tells us again in the discourses that quote men pass from one ambition to another they first desire not to be injured and then desire to inflict injury on others end quote um so so there's no there's no sort of like liberal or libertarian equilibrium here you 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 are either being a victim or a victimizer in this way of looking at the world now i'm not even mm-hmm. saying that's correct i'm saying this is a way of looking at the world and it's a way of looking at the world that i think can shed some light on areas of our society that are sort of more clean-cut liberal individualism doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a plausible psychological hypothesis um, and one that I think liberalism or or leftism or however you want to call it, like whatever, I I use the term progressive at this point because I want progress, so I'm I'm avoiding the whole leftist liberal debate. Um, You know, I think that this is something that, 
folks on the left, the progressives want and need to address. Um, so, it, you know, whether or not it ends up being true, I do think we should sort of polish up this question. So one thing there that I noticed in, in that quote, it's framing it in terms of there being two distinct groups, right? Oppressor mm-hmm. and depressed, which is, I think, a useful way to frame the discussion sometimes. But we probably want to clarify that, like, some of what you're getting to in the second half of that quote, each of these desires exists in every person at every level of society, right? Like nowhere in society do you find a person who is low enough that they don't have the desire to try to find someone lower than them in turn to oppress and humiliate, correct? Yeah, so it's the cliche of the two wolves in the man's heart. Um, Mm -hmm. But the circumstances bring it out of us. Right. So in Machiavelli, um, he, he has a very radically dynamic view of human nature. People are very changeable and people are very responsive to circumstance. So mm-hmm. if you are in a position where, you know, you're being dominated, you're being humiliated, your natural desire is going to be in opposition to that. Um, but then simply being in a position of power for Machiavelli will bring mm-hmm. out of you that desire to dominate and humiliate, and which mm-hmm. one you are will depend on your position. Although it's complicated, most of us will sometimes have power and sometimes won't. But the the, the two desires, like you say, are in everyone, and which one um, is prevalent will depend on your circumstances and your ability to dominate. Great. Let me ask you one other clarifying question here, right? Because we're talking, we keep saying dominate and humiliate, but those are, I think, importantly distinct concepts. Do you feel like we need maybe to distinguish between the desire to dominate, especially for like the purposes of security, right? I want to dominate you so that there's no chance of you hurting me is a different motive than I want to humiliate you to build up my self-esteem, for example. Do you think that both are unavoidably part of human nature or is there any is there any gap between these two concepts do you think yeah it's a really good question and it forced me to get it clear in my own head i use the word domination because that is just a central marker that i'm operating within a republican political theory um so republican here obviously is the tradition within democratic thought not the political party mm-hmm. but dominate in the republican tradition tends to sort of mean to have power over right, right. so i would sort of I think I view humiliation as like a subset of that. Like, I think you Mm -hmm. could dominate someone without humiliating them. But I think if if you're in a position, if you are, but you need to be dominating someone to humiliate them, humiliating them is kind Mm. of like rubbing their nose in it, right? It's like, I. Well, I mean, I think you you could imagine someone who can humiliate somebody from a position of. what we might perceive as relative lack of power, right? They would they would assert some they would make some sort of power move on someone who was more powerful than them, and they could in some way like throwing milkshakes, for example, right? If I throw a milkshake at Farage or something, right? He nominally has more power than I do, but I could humiliate him in that context. Um, but I do think you're right that they often go hand in hand. So I, it's not a, like a full rejection of what you're saying. I agree that like once you have power, I think the urge to humiliate comes more naturally. Yeah, I think so that's interesting. I think the 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 feeling of humiliation is not co- is very closely bound up in feelings of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Um so even in the case of Farage with the milkshake, you know, the, he was obviously very angry and upset about that, right? And mm-hmm. I, why like you know it's a suit he's a wealthy guy he can get a new one is i mean i don't know his mind but like if i had to guess it's because in that moment he felt powerless and he felt an absence of something which he's used to having he he's used to feeling in control of the situation he's used to being deferred to being respected and the absence of that is quite unsettling now i agree that's obviously a very different mechanic than you know mm-hmm. you humiliating someone who's unequivocally less powerful than you but it's interesting it, it it's it's very closely tied in with the operation of power right 
Yeah, and I mean, they're all, I think they're both closely tied in with a lot of psychological features having to do with feeling secure and in control and, like, quieting the anxiety of, you know, where you might be in your relative position to others around you. So, I mean, I do think there is a close connection between them, though I think we might hope, for example, that, you know, it, given the choice, we would hope, I think, that that the desire to dominate in the sense of having enough power to be invulnerable, for example, from attacks from people around you, is a less harmful desire. And if you could, you, if you could weed out the desire to humiliate on top of dominating, you might at least end up with a marginally less immoral cycle of societies, perhaps. Do you, do you tend to agree with that at all? Yeah. And I mean, so that's the aspiration, right? The aspiration right. is that you could have um you could have people in charge who are not dicks about it, essentially, <laughs> right? Right. And I think what, <laughs> to use a technical term. Right. I think what Machiavelli wants to tell us at the heart of everything that he's about is that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the hard truth, I think, that animates all of Machiavelli's political philosophy, is that men, like I say, the the, the desire to humiliate just naturally comes online once you have that dominating power. And the, in, in, you know, rare individuals, you get people of, of, of virtue, of excellence, who... Um, might be able to withstand it through strength of character or something, but the urge will be there and it's natural and it's normal in a sense. And that um mm-hmm. that the the hope of humanity, the 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 wish of humanity is to find these sort of um non-humiliating masters. But we're not really gonna do that, or, or we're certainly not gonna be able to do that in a way that's lasting or stable because again to go back to the cyclical theory everything decays everything collapses men are corrupted noble men you know good virtuous men are replaced by men of lesser virtue and so so the idea that you you can and this just runs through all of republican theory right which is the idea is what what what, you know the the Whereas liberalism says you might be you you might be dominated, but if you're unconstrained, you're okay. Republican theory makes the more aggressive demand that you can't even be dominated. Mm-hmm. And Machiavelli really flashes that out for us by saying, you know, this is you. There's no there's no finding that sweet spot. You'll either be being dominated, or yeah. you'll be actively fighting against it, and that's it, Bucko. You know, it's a very conservative. That's that's where I feel like the Hobbesian part of him really does come out, feeling like at the end of the day, the war of all against all is just right on the other side of the door, um, and that like you're just you're barely managing to cling to avoid it um, with any given social system, essentially. Um, yes, but then then so I think. I mean, Machiavelli certainly does have a darker side, right? And there's these redemptive Machiavellis that want to come along and say, you know, no, he was actually a really swell person, guys. And I'm not doing that. There is, there is that. There's definitely a dark side to him. What what gets Machiavelli out of the sort of um, Hobbesian authoritarianism? is this idea of freedom. Freedom for Machiavelli is found in collective resistance. So he, Machiavelli, again and again and again, goes out of his way to praise popular protest and rioting in a way that he makes explicit he knows will be counter-expectational for his audience. He says, you know, you are going to find this shocking, but riots are a good thing. And the reason is that it's, in that expression of popular and collective anger at being dominated, that freedom is found for him. And it's in this idea that for most of human history, people are dominated and they're humiliated and they're made to kiss the ring and bow and tug the forelock. And every now and again, they just go, fucking no, no, 
even yeah. if it's self-destructive and weird and irrational, we're not. No. And sometimes they'll just be crushed. Sometimes that demand will be so explosive that will it will lead to anarchy. But sometimes it will lead to the elites having to make a compromise and take their, their foot off their throat. And it's in that compromise that freedom is found. And freedom emerges for us in Machiavelli as a sort of class-based pride. It's, um, it's a holistic property of the people as a whole, a set of... Um, I'm thinking in the modern world of like union strong or that sort of like shared resolution amongst those who are still comparatively powerless that they will not be humiliated. And it's that other sort of moral vision that I think can, we can still find attractive in Machiavelli, even though there are these very stark mm-hmm. confrontational and authoritarian elements to him as well. Yeah, I mean, on that side, he is, I think, going more in the, like, progressive direction that I think, um, you know, even if he doesn't think it's ultimately possible to weed it out on the psychological side, it still seems like the goal of a good um, manager of a society is to bring one about where you minimize the amount of humiliation and thereby minimize the need for violent redress of that humiliation right and you you know like i would go farther and say i think it's possible to create societies whereby you effectively eliminate that kind of large-scale humiliation um but i you know i I say that without being able to point to a society that has done so Uh, it just seems to me that there's no reason in principle why we couldn't effectively eliminate a lot of the major causes of humiliation in terms of radical wealth inequality for example right and so this is where the the arc and the circle diverge, right? Mm-hmm. Is on right. the arc, you know, it's not just societies, but it's human nature that's improvable. And this has been a big element of progressive liberalism um, right. from John Stuart Mill talking about the free development of individuality as an end in itself all the way. You know, the idea that people can be better we, we're improvable links to the idea very naturally that society is improvable and will progress down that arc now, for so also back to virtue theory right and like the basic flourishing of individuals by promoting virtue yeah so yeah and you know there's a distinction that we talked about there between improvable and perfectible sure for machiavelli there's none of that right <laughs> Like, you know, you might have a society that's more equal in terms of wealth, but you'll never have a society in which there isn't the operation of power. And where you have the operation of power, the desire to Mm -hmm. humiliate comes along for the ride with him. You you know, you can argue if that's the right view, but that's the view. Well, I I guess um, I'm sympathetic in the sense that another um, theory that I wanted to put forward for your consideration for why the cycles happen is that, you know, and and this is, I think, can pair well with the the humiliation um, theory is that, you know, we we do have a desire to progress in terms of increasing the quality of life of the individuals, at least in the modern era, we can say that like the goal of society is to increase the quality of life of individuals within that system. And when it's functioning well, it trends in that direction. Um, and the reason that that's not reliable or stable and is prone to these cyclical collapses could be that it's just easier with any complex system to do harm rather than good. It just takes a more concerted effort by more people pulling in the right direction to actually make progress than it does, for example, one very horrible individual pulling in the wrong direction to cause a lot of damage. Yeah, and I mean, that may be right. Um, in terms of like what I think the historical Machiavelli would say is mm-hmm. there just isn't this idea of progress there. You've got to, right. you've not only, you know, when you're trying to get inside the head of some of these pre-modern writers, it's not just to modify your concepts. It's some of them they just didn't have access to. And mm-hmm. so for Machiavelli, absolutely, societies are brought down by the desire to, to dominate and humiliate. And that's the thing for him. It's, it's not only um, that it's 
nasty. It's that it's 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 ruinous. Um, tyrants destroy their states. Corrupt oligarchies destroy their states. If there's no countervailing force um, to this desire to dominate, then it just eats itself and everything around it. And and that that's the low point on the circle. And the way you get back to the high point on the circle is you have this desire not to be dominate, assert itself in collective force such that the the state has a mixed constitution. There's both there's all of these desires are are balancing each other out. And that gives you a Republican system. So like Rome mm-hmm. or like contemporary America. And those states are the ones that become empires, according to Machiavelli. Those are the ones who conquer the world, because it's not just an elite forcing its rule on the population. It's an elite that can use its population um, to Mm -hmm. build a state, to have a military. And then you'll get your Rome, and then the Rome will become corrupt and decay and collapse again. But yes, so to to, to answer your question, what, what brings the circle down is this desire to dominate. And then what pulls it back is this assertion of civic pride that Machiavelli calls freedom. But there's no there's no progress to be found there. And I think if you want to sort of talk about the sort of improvability of persons, then you know you can, but you you can't I, I find it difficult to do so within the cyclical um paradigm. Right. Fair enough. Um, so I wanted to apply this to uh, our current, either what, what we might argue is the potential collapse of one system into another system that we're experiencing in America right now. Um, when I was listening to you talking about this desire to humiliate uh, and and avoid humiliation, the first person who came to mind for me was Trump, and for uh, for two reasons at least, right? The first one, which I think you agree with, is. Um, Trump's political genius, it seems like, if he has such a thing, could potentially be located in how well he understands and speaks to the desire in his constituents to, A, humiliate others, specifically liberals, and B, to avoid humiliation, the way they feel they've been mocked and and mistreated by society. Do you agree with that application of this principle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this okay. takes us out of the realm of history, right? And right. this is like we oh we we're, have, we're making history here. Don't worry about yeah. that. Um, is like we have this sort of toy. Now let's you know. Now we play with it. But yeah, right. There's something. There's something about the Trump thing that just isn't obviously and easily explicable through the lens of like rational self-interest. Or something like that, right? And I mean, I think it seems to me at least to be a very obvious psychological fact about the world that many people voted for Trump precisely because they knew it would really upset the other political tribe. It would really. But I mean, own the lips has become ubiquitous now, right? Mm -hmm. Like liberal tears, oh, you're triggered, like all of that, right? Yeah, um, I don't think it's, it's disingenuous. I think it is exactly the kind of desire that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, we're ju- you're just taking people at their word there. And it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's not like, you know, there's plenty of stuff that I would like to achieve politically that I'm sure would upset and aggravate people. But that's not really like, like that's not the point of me doing those things. Whereas I think there's a big part of the point of Trump is to upset people. And yes, you're also quite right on the other side. These people feel humiliated and they feel disrespected. And this is where it's so Machiavellian is to, to Machiavelli, there's no it's not even a fine line. There's no there's no middle point to him. So to our liberal way of thinking, you know, there's positions where you're powerless and humiliated, and there's positions where you're dominating and humiliating. But then there's this big swathe of territory in between, which is just kind of a stable state where we live our lives and we buy groceries, right? For Machiavelli, that 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 
middle space collapses down to nothing. And that is sort of the genius of, if maybe not Trump himself, the Trumpian movement, is there's no there's no line there, right? That that his supporters, and let's just take the obvious case of like older white men, right? Mm-hmm. They find the idea of no longer having, no longer being um the majority part in America, right? This is a very real fear, I think, for many white people, that they won't be the majority racial group in America. They find that thought deeply humiliating, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon, they, in their heads, as soon as they move from humiliating others, they are in a position of humiliation, and it works the other way, is they feel humiliated, by not being in a position where they can humiliate others. So that, you know, certain groups in society have had to give up. So, you know, we can no longer call black men boy, right? Mm -hmm. That is not just like to the liberal mind. That's, you know, I'm just in a resting state. I'm neutral. I should be fine with that. Whereas to the Machiavellian mind, that's deeply humiliating, like to not be able to humiliate is humiliating. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's one or the other. And I think there's something about the Trumpian movement that captures that 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 lack of a middle ground perfectly. So that was quite a yeah. long answer, but yes. No, I think it's a good answer. And I think that the way you're describing it, seeing it as the zero-sum game, to me, uh, strikes me as a profoundly masculine way of seeing the world. Not not essentialistly, but like in terms of yes. historical coding, right? It is it is that either you're the guy on top or you're the guy being dominated in a specifically um, very gendered kind of way. And it's why I think his rhetoric often appeals more dominantly to men do you do you agree with that and then i and like machiavelli i think you mentioned is uh, a well-known misogynist so you could imagine how that would influence his perspective as well to see this as you know dominator be dominated yes yes no that's exactly right now to be clear i'm using misogynist in in a sort of specific sense here mm-hmm. um machiavelli there's there's various writers in the canon who hate women they really really hate women right in right. that <laughs> there's a lot of ve- the frightening amount well well there's there's i don't machiavelli um if you asked him would be one of these guys who said i love women he was machiavelli was very popular with women in his lifetime he was sort of quite a philanderer and he was a big gossip and he had a lot of female friends and he would always like have you know affairs and stuff with younger women and so on in this sort of jovial but machiavelli was a frat boy he was a dude bro right like that's how you mm-hmm. want to read him in today's terms the way in which i say he's a misogynist is that his entire worldview is just um, absolutely um, coloured by conceptions of, of, of the masculine and the feminine, and particular ideas of masculinity are absolutely inseparable from how he, he, he saw the world. Um, and you're quite right that there's something... I mean, at least in terms of the stereotypical constructions of masculinity, there's something very stereotypically male about the the decisiveness of this worldview, right? There's Mm -hmm. no subtlety. There's no big role for, like, care or anything like that here. And more than that, this idea of... um, of like asserting your will against history and against society, right? Which is um, mm-hmm. which is um, baked into this cyclical idea and this freedom of idea, is itself understood as a masculine act. So the idea of of creating order is seen as masculine. So um, right. the big the big concept here is virtu. Um, which is translated horribly as virtue, but it comes from this Greek word arete, meaning masculine excellence, a sort of masculine competence. Um, And it's actually um, the same root word as virility. So Mm -hmm. to be excellent is to be virile in the root word, viritus vir in Latin. Um, And the idea is that manliness is imposing and creating order on the world. And the world itself is perceived as feminine, um, fortuna, 
fortune is a woman, right? And there's this right. terrible nature is a woman, right? Everything, right, right, right. Um, Things that are dominated are women, usually speaking. We just did ecofeminism over on philosophers in space. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's the the sort of um, you know, well, the, do you know that the, the fortune is a woman quote? There's a book called Fortune is a Woman, and it's mm-hmm. about this idea. Um, and the other half of the quote, so luck be a lady tonight, I think is the way that book goes. Yeah. Well, the, the second half of the quote is just, just so appalling and so striking is the second half is fortune is a woman to control her. You must beat her. Mm. Um, and that's, that's why that book's Dark called, I think, I think it's by Judith Butler. I want to say I could be uh-huh. wrong with that. Um, but the idea is that to master the world you need to be assertive and to be decisive. And in the same way as women, supposedly, right? Women don't like weak, timid, vacillating guys. Fortune, the world, doesn't like weakness. It doesn't like timidity. Fortune favours the brave, right? And right. when people say fortune favours the brave, what what the ancient mind was picturing there was a woman being seduced by a decisive, virile man right so right. elements was of like, this idea yeah so elements of like not just masculinity but of sexual prowess and violent sexual prowess run through all of how the ancient and the renaissance mind conceptualized the struggle for freedom and the cycles of political change. And so, I, I, yes, I think it is no accident that Machiavelli appeals more to men today. And I think all of those things you said apply, everyone I think would agree, apply perfectly to the Trumpian view of power and like the fact that you can never show weakness or vulnerability of any kind of sort. Those are classically feminine traits. You have to always be dominating and punching back twice as hard all the time. Um, there, there's another aspect to this that I think um, is pretty significant. Some folks were a little antsy about using this kind of language, but we've talked on the show before about the fact that Trump is pretty clearly a narcissist in a in a diagn- like would be diagnosed as such if he could ever get him into a therapist's office, mm. and that the, one of the major beating hearts of narcissism as a as a disorder, besides the low empathy issues, is there is a incredible fear of being humiliated. That is one of the over and over again, you'll, you'll hear from narcissists. The, the most important thing they're afraid of is not being embarrassed in some kind of way. And you see it with Trump, right? You hear the stories of like him being so mad after being embarrassed by Obama at the thing that he like plans to run for president and ruin everything that Obama ever touched essentially. Um, and I guess it leads me to wonder, right? If this is, the nature of humanity and our narcissists are just the most extreme version of it. Like, is it fair to say that the the biggest threat to society is the individual that can affect like, like Trump does effectively bring out the narcissist in all of us? I mean, look, this is something that a lot of philosophers and thinkers throughout the ages. It's not just Machiavelli have said this is really ground zero for human nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would tend to speak to that story. And certainly, like I say, in the ancient mind and the Renaissance mind, um, that that's definitely a very um, dominant chord. But if the, if there is this sort of overcurrent of aggressive, narcissistic masculinity in the sorts of traditions I'm talking about. There's also this interesting undercurrent, um, best exemplified by Plato's tyrant, but there's there's also elements in Machiavelli that that doesn't make you happy. And this idea that sort of like tyrants are people ultimately to be pitied, and that mm-hmm. whatever else you might say about Trump like the inside of his head can't be a very happy place to be. Oh, absolutely not. It's probably the worst hell you can imagine. And that's, so So to, to I mean, Plato does this best, right? Like this mm-hmm. idea of just the roving, unconstrained id and um, the, the mm-hmm. sort of city-state metaphor wherein he says like the tyrant is like, 
um, the reverse of a doctor. The doctor cuts out the, the malignant parts and preserves the good parts, and the, the tyrant cuts out everything that's good in the state because it might challenge his power. And all of the horrible mercenaries and toadies and flatterers, he elevates and empowers Right. And Plato says someone who has a tyrant's mind, a tyrant's soul, does the same thing with his psyche. Anything that's good or rational or noble um, has to be cut out. And everything that's malignant and stupid and corrupt has to be brought in. And there's this wonderful image of Book Nine in The Republic where he says, imagine one of those dreams you have where anything becomes possible, any dark and evil desire, and your worst impulses just roam the land unconstrained. And he says, think about how frightened you are when you wake up from that dream. And he says, to live as a tyrant is to live in that dream and never wake and mm-hmm. you, you hope we, we all like to hope right i i i mean i i think the when people think of the platonic tyrant they think of like your caligulas or so on i think as well as anyone as i've ever seen trump fits that mold for me very this this roving unconstrained id surrounded yeah. only by the worst parts of a human soul and obsessed like you say with 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 petty feelings of humiliation um and also deeply deeply disordered and unhappy um and so so, you so hope. To, to, i mean again like we 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 like to believe that he suffers for or, or you know i mean whether or not we like to believe it right like in the sense of we want to see him suffering right our view of the world presupposes that something is lost if you have that kind of existence, that he is missing something. But we can't, I guess we can't really ever know for certain that, that he is missing something in his own head. Maybe he is happy with the way his life has gone, will die happy no matter the way it goes because his shielding of his own ego is is strong enough to resist any kind of harm, Right. Well, I mean, I don't know if he has the self-awareness to ever sort of consciously think, I'm not happy. Um, And by the way, this doesn't apply to all powerful people who do bad things. Um, I can think of many powerful people who do bad things, who don't fit their psychological profile at all. But it is the striking thing about Trump is that he's... When have you ever seen the guy laugh? Or smile, not smirk, smile. Right, it's very, very, very rare. I actually don't think I've ever heard him laugh. I I think it has happened, but I agree with you that, like, even the people who are around him say that it's vanishingly rare. That you get a lot of smirking, you get get laughing at his own jokes kind of stuff Mm. a little bit, but I think you're right that, like, you rarely see him give someone else the credit of laughing at their jokes in a genuine kind of way. Yeah. And I mean, I talked about this with Peter Singer, actually, in that Mm. there's no law of the universe that bad people will be punished. My, my, my meta ethics can easily accommodate a happy Caligula, but with, with, with Trump, I do. It seems very obvious to me that he's very unhappy and you sort of say well is he aware of it i don't i don't think he's even aware to some extent of other types of mental inner life that are possible and it also seems to be the case that many of the people he surrounds himself with also seem to be deeply unhappy to me it's just a read i could be wrong but i've even before he was president when he first started running i was struck i wrote about it a little bit at the time i was struck by the plato analogy to trump Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i agree and i think you know, insofar as we can assert, you know, ascertain the the beliefs or the mental states of anyone, um, I think it's a reasonable thing to put money on him not being happy. However, however much he's really vividly aware of it. Um, so moving away from like questioning the mental states of our current president here a little bit before we run out of time, I'm curious: Do you think that there are ideologies that sort of lean into versus lean out of this? you know, desire to humiliate or dominate and, and avoid humiliation or domination. Like, it seems to me that there are, but I don't know. Do you, do you agree on that? Yes, 
Yes, but I think it's... So, I mean, this is an obvious statement, right? But, like, it's really difficult and it's really complicated. And, sure. you know, you know, the more I do the podcast, the more I'm getting comfortable with just saying, look, I, I don't know. These are particular visions or representations of the world that people have putting you had. on the spot, though. <laughs> um, but I think certainly... There were, you know, like there were certain types of society and certain types of um, communities that we can build that I think minimize these. I think when I think about like my immediate family or so on, mm-hmm. and that part of me just isn't present at all. But I think if you're honest, that that like, I'll, I'll put it this way: we're both. Um, like white guys, right? Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm assuming you yep. identify as white, right? Um, <laughs> like, if, if you want evidence that like sexism or racism are real, um, you can look at all statistics and stuff. But at the end of the day, actually, all you need to do is be introspectively honest about what is there in your own head. That doesn't mean that doesn't justify you acting on it or not challenging it or not trying to be better. But I think any straight guy has thought unpleasant things about women, you know? Mm -hmm. And that element is in us. And I think what I was trying to do with this series was not to say that this is an element that needs to be empowered or that we need to have a certainly not that we need to have a political ideology that like trumps that dignifies it and elevates it absolutely not i think what i was more trying to say is this is an element of ourselves that needs to be understood and if we want and and that when we try to process the world merely as a cold impersonal newtonian system of moving parts that can be understood by equations we miss very obvious truths about what's happening to our society and some of the dangers that confront it because Although I think there are types of societies that we will be able to evolve away from some of these darker urges, Um, we're not there yet. And analysing the world as if we are there can leave us with some very big and very obvious blind spots. That's great. I think it's a very nice, voidy way to wrap this up here. Uh, So why don't we hop on over to making the void livable then? Nice. Tonight has nothing to do with nice. Tonight's all about... Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Oh, sorry, Marge, wrong tape. Welcome to the jungle! We got fun and games! Well, let's, um... Well, you know, yes, let let me follow on to the other side of that, though. Okay. Which is, we talked a lot about this desire to dominate and to humiliate. There is this other side to, um... Machiavelli, but I feel this in my own life very much, which is solidarity with others in saying, I will not be dominated, I will not be humiliated. Um, So just as a quick example, um, I was at a funeral recently um, of someone um, who'd been a union organiser, they died quite young, it was very tragic. Um, I just remember a lot of people saying at the funeral, we're Jewish socialists. That's who we are. Mm. And, you know, make of that tribe what you will. I'm familiar with the tribe, yeah. um, but, But just that idea of having an identity that is grounded in some sense in um liberation and some of the the closest relationships i have in my life are grounded in the bonds that are forged in what can often seem and sometimes is a sort of pyrrhic and ultimately futile struggle in in reclaiming self-respect and you know just to be a bit mushy um one of the reasons i feel like i'm so bonded with and i you know love my wife very much is she's someone i met through activism and through organizing who has a very clear sense of 
not just like justice, but a very clear sense of pushing back and of challenging injustice, be that big structural injustice of society and politics. But she's also the type of person who, much more than I am, although I aspire to be it, will confront injustice when it's present in the world around us, will speak for someone who is being humiliated in front of her, who can't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about forming... So just as there is something about wanting to humiliate other people that is part of all of us and does massively inform the way our society functions and our politics works, there is also something about forming bonds on... Not just a collective recognition of dignity, but a collective resistance to those those desires of de- denying people dignity mm-hmm. um, that, that provides, I think, us with some of our, our deepest um, expressions of love and meaning in the world. Um, so that, that is the other side of this story as well. There is, there is definitely a very dark side of it. And then there is also um, this rather wonderful side of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's important, especially when we get into like the Evo psych sort of that we as social creatures being pro-social creatures, you know, there there is just as much in us that is about sort of coming together to solve a problem than there is about dominating others that you perceive as a problem. Both of those those desires certainly exist in us. Um, but again, going back to our two wolves metaphor, right? You can feed one more than the other, it seems like. And, and you know, like you could argue that call-out culture is an example of the desire to humiliate paired with the desire to yes. seek justice, potentially run amok too far in certain situations. Um, but I agree with you that, like, one of the things that makes all of this livable is that um, human beings are willing there is something hardwired into us to be willing to stand up for someone even when there's no benefit to us that we we see a desire to bring about fairness even if we're not going to be the ones that directly benefit from that uh, assertion of that principle yeah and oh I, i'm sorry I, I i always do this to you we get it to the end and like and, and but like if i could just say something <laughs> about cancel culture really quick i sure. think that's so <laughs> fucking I, Machia- that yeah. I think that's so fucking machiavellian where it's just like there's there's two sides of the knife edge and you can never stand on the knife edge you're either dominating or you're being dominated and like that's it and i think that's like so true in that there are instances look i've always said i'm on the sort of social justice side of these debates but there are instances where um you know um policing of certain forms of language or expression do get to the point where they're not only like annoying and obnoxious but they're nasty you know Mm -hmm. they're mean-spirited and they're not coming from a place of compassion or love they're coming from a place of i'm gonna put that person in their place you do mm-hmm. you do see this and having worked in social justice i have i have seen it and i think machiavelli would go yeah well what did you expect you, you you had people first striving not to be dominated and humiliated and then you know within certain movements and certain spaces they gained positions of power and so then they wanted to dominate and humiliate others i think that that just aligns perfectly Mm -hmm. with this way of seeing the world and i I will say i think those instances are comparatively trivial compared to say president trump obviously trivial compared to that but you know you do i think you do you do see it you know like Mm -hmm. like there's never a moment where you just relax and breathe breathe easy and you're neither slave nor master yeah i mean that's a good point um as well I'll, i'll I'll leave off there for now so that I don't get you off onto another tangent, but we'll have to get oh you back God, on I at some point. I got excited with this stuff. I know. I understand. It's, you know, my problem too, but I got a, I got an editor who wants to, you know, not right. be listening to us for the rest of humanity. But I really do appreciate this. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Um, yeah, sure. So my show is um, the Political Philosophy Podcast. Um want to hear my full full three fucking hours if you've really got nothing else to live for on Machiavelli. And I also do interviews like this as well. It's just politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And that's got the links to everything on it. Great. Well, thanks so much, Toby. And uh, we'll have you back on again soon, I imagine. 
No, thanks for thanks for for having me back. I always enjoy this. Thank you so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Uh, thank you to my editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, and to GW for the music. And thank you to all of our listeners, and especially our $20 and up patrons, including Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence made my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org, Philosophy Book Club will live again, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And thanks especially to our top-tier patron, Dave Maslich. Y'all, you are so amazing. Thank you for being so patient while I got the show caught up, and I promise that I will get back on patron rewards very soon. Um, if you would like to get more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to uh, my other show, Philosophers in Space. And also come join the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which also serves as the Embrace the Void group. I promise you won't regret it. If you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.